Are you eager to learn more about law? Me too. Hello, my name is Sarah Chayo. Welcome to A Question of Law, a podcast created for law enthusiasts who want to increase their knowledge and deepen their understanding of the law. Our guests, legal professionals chosen from an array of legal proficiencies, will explain to us the fundamental principles of a specific topics in the areas of expertise. Then, they will educate us on new legal developments in their fields in the form of a recent case law or new legislation. They'll share with us their opinions on the ramifications of these latest advances. Finally, we'll talk about their career path and uncover some great insights about their lives and experiences. So, if you want to feed your curiosity, enrich your mind and get inspired. Take a break, sit back and remain tuned in. This edition of A Question of Law will focus on the topic of extradition and freedom of speech in relation to the Julian Assange case. It's important, therefore, to review the chronology of events to understand the context in which those extradition proceedings took place. In 2006, Julian Assange created Wikileaks, a platform that publishes sensitive material from governments and other high-profile organizations. It has, in particular, released thousands of secret U.S. military logs detailing their operations in Iraq and Afghanistan. The website allows anyone to submit classified, censored and restricted material of a political and diplomatic nature to the site. This information is reviewed before being offered to mainstream newspapers for publication. The Guardian, The New York Times, The Der Spilger and Le Monde have published articles based on information obtained through Wikileaks regarding the killings of civilians, rendition of prisoners and acts that can amount to war crimes, as well as information about politicians. In 2010, during a business trip to Sweden, Julian Assange was accused of allegedly having consensual but against their will unprotected sex with two women. They went to the police to require him to take an STD test. The events were later classified as rape and sexual assault. Assange denied the accusations and remained in the country for a while to answer potential questions before being allowed to come back to the UK. Very shortly after his departure, the Swedish Prosecution Service issued a European arrest warrant for his extradition back to Sweden. He gave himself up to the British authorities and was put in jail for 10 days before being granted bail whilst fighting the warrant in court. It appeared that he was willing to cooperate with the investigation, but refused the extradition as he feared a subsequent extradition to the US for the leaking of military and political documents through Wikileaks. Having lost his appeal in court, he fled to the Ecuadorian embassy in London, where he requested asylum status and later citizenship. Out of reach from the British jurisdiction, he could not be arrested and extradited, 
but was unable to set foot outside of the embassy without being arrested, either under the extradition request or for breaking his bail conditions. He remained in the embassy for seven years, during which his relationship with the Ecuadorian government deteriorated after the election of a new president with a foreign policy more open to U.S. influences. Inside the embassy, he was submitted to constant video surveillance. His visitors' phones were tapped until visits were almost entirely forbidden. His predicament had a dire effect on his mental health. In 2019, the Ecuadorian president retracted his asylum and citizenship statute and allowed British police to arrest him, not to extradite him to Sweden, as the sexual charges had been dropped, but because he had skipped bail back in 2010. He was sent to Belmarsh Prison, which hosts the most dangerous criminals in the country, and was given the maximum sentence of 50 weeks in jail for the offence. During this time, he was visited by the UN reporter on torture and two colleagues of his, who assessed him and concluded that he was exhibiting all the symptoms of people submitted to psychological torture. During this period, the US issued an extradition request, so Julian Assange remained in jail despite having served his full sentence until the trial for the US extradition took place, which was in January 2021. He was accused of one count of conspiracy of hacking into government computer and 17 charges under the Espionage Act including having endangered many U.S. informants' life. If found guilty, he could face a sentence of 175 years in prison. The judge Vanessa Barretza blocked the extradition request not on the basis that the case was politically motivated or would infringe on his freedom of speech, but based on the state of Julian Assange's mental health. Assange is currently still in jail, waiting for the appeal lodged by the US. So, we'll explore the ramifications of the extradition proceedings Julian Assange was submitted to with our guest. Let's start. Hello, Ben. Welcome to A Question of Law. I'm deeply honoured to have you on this podcast. Uh, thank you very much. I'm very pleased to be here. Ben, you are a barrister at 500's Hill and a leading specialist in extradition and international crime, and you also specialise in immigration, serious fraud and public law. You have an extensive experience of litigation in British and international courts. Legal 500 and Chamber and Partners do not tire of compliments to describe your work. You are gifted tactically astute, fantastic with clients, and adept at giving straightforward advice in the most complex cases. So it is no surprise that they have ranked you at the highest level. You are particularly commended for extradition to and from Eastern countries. You also advise the Government Legal Department on a range of public law matters, 
your legal expertise and analytical mind are sought after, and you regularly provide legal commentaries through articles published in national and international newspapers and through interviews on various TV channels. Therefore, I'm very humbled that you have accepted to take part in this podcast to talk about extradition, Julian Assange and the freedom of the press. So, shall I start by asking you to explain the extradition proceedings Julian Assange has been subjected to? Yes, sure. So, well, thank you firstly, Sarah, for inviting me to come and speak on your podcast. Um, I hope it's interesting to your listeners. Um, Julian Assange has been subject to two main sets of extradition proceedings. Mm -hmm. The first of those was a European arrest warrant from Sweden in relation to allegations of sexual offences. Mm -hmm. And the second and more recent and currently ongoing set of proceedings is an extradition request from the United States of America in relation to his work with WikiLeaks and allegations of espionage against him. So, as you explained, the first request for extradition was under the European arrest warrant. Could you tell us briefly how it worked and possibly a few words about the instrument that has replaced it after Brexit? So, firstly, the European arrest warrant, uh, which we were a signatory to for a number of years, was a piece of European law mm -hmm. designed to make extradition processes speedy and summary, essentially. It was a system which was based on mutual trust and recognition between European Union countries and a few others to uh, extract people at, at some speed without the need to provide any evidence. Mm -hmm. It was a pretty effective system. The UK was particularly involved in European arrest warrants because we had a lot of foreign nationals who came to the United Kingdom and a lot of countries use the European arrest warrant regularly and would often request people in the, who were in the United Kingdom. And so we at uh, the bar and solicitors developed particular expertise in European arrest warrants because uh, it was centralised in one court in Westminster, whereas in some countries it's, it's much more federalised or much more dispersed. And so I've done probably over a thousand, well over a thousand uh, EAW cases. Mm -hmm. All you have to do in a European arrest warrant is essentially identify the individual, say in very short form what they are accused of or convicted of in a pro forma box, whether they were present at their trial or whether they've been arrested for this offence already, and then whether you guarantee them a right to retrial, and then give a quick summary of what the law is. So it is whatever this offence a criminal offence? So for instance, most European arrest warrant cases involve a criminal offence, which is internationally recognised, but you can tick a box in relation to serious offences, terrorism, murder, people trafficking, mm -hmm. fraud, some other, and, and, and several others. Or it can be, for instance, dangerous driving or robbery or other uh, criminal offences that both jurisdictions recognise. There are, on occasions, some criminal offences that were not recognised by both countries. So, for instance, one not very common but occasionally turning up offence was failure to pay child maintenance in Poland is a criminal offence, but it's not a criminal offence in the United Kingdom. So, European arrest warrants for pay, failure to pay child maintenance from Poland which there would be a few a year, were automatically discharged because it wasn't a criminal offence in the United Kingdom. So there are one or two instances where some countries criminalise what the UK would see as a civil wrong, mm. 
Uh, and in those cases, we didn't extradite. So the double criminality principle, where the offence is recognised in both legal systems, is central to the extradition. Yes, so it's got to be. It's got to be either internationally recognised in the system, and so you tick a box on what's called the framework list, or there's got to be dual criminality. Post leaving the European Union, there there are unfortunately now parallel systems. So. The European arrest warrants continues to operate in the United Kingdom for all those European arrest warrants who were executed prior to the 31st of December 2020 and all of those that were issued. So it is theoretically possible to be arrested on a European arrest warrant today mm-hmm. that was issued two or three or four years ago that's still a European arrest warrant and therefore be subject to the European framework decision in European law, even though we've left the European Union. The second replacement for the European arrest warrant system in the United Kingdom mm-hmm. is, in fact, a, a simple arrest warrant system containing the Trade and Cooperation Agreement. It mirrors in many respects the European arrest warrant, but isn't exactly the same. And we don't really know whether whether many of those are going to be issued or how effective they're going to be for the simple fact that under the old system, you could issue a European arrest warrant which went to all countries in Europe. So you could just put it on the Schengen information system Mm -hmm. and it would ping around Europe. Whereas now, a particular prosecutor, for instance, in Poland or Lithuania, has to, in fact, fill in a separate pro forma for the United Kingdom when they don't necessarily know that the individual is or isn't in the United Kingdom. So we haven't yet seen many of those European arrest warrants coming through. And we'll, we'll take a few months for us to know what that means for extradition in the United Kingdom. So to put all this in the context of the Julian Assange case, taking into account that there were some controversies about the allegations and whether they constituted rape, sexual assault in Sweden and in the UK, and the fact that he's never been charged for these allegations and he was under investigation but not charged, and further controversies about the refusal from Sweden to give a guarantee that Julian Assange would not be extradited to the US, was it necessary, appropriate and proportional to use this instrument? And would a questioning by video conference with him staying in the UK not have been a better solution? Perhaps. And that's one of the arguments that Julian Assange ran in his first European arrest warrant. And I think if we remember the allegations were of rape or sexual assault. Mm-hmm. And there was the, the controversy was really about, um, it wasn't that the women hadn't consented to sexual activity with him, as far as I'm aware. It was, it was his failure to use a condom when he said that he had done. Plus, there were some other sexual assault issues, which isn't really that controversial, I have to say. I think it's it's fairly clear that those would constitute sexual assault in the United Kingdom. Whether or not it would constitute rape, I think, would, would be more difficult to prove, but they would certainly constitute sexual assault. The question really would have been, as in all those types of cases, all normal sexual cases, is the issue of consent. So did the individuals involved, both sides, did they consent to what they to what eventually occurred. And that's not really a matter you can decide remotely. It was something for the trial process. The controversy is slightly exacerbated by the distinction between the UK system and other systems. So the UK system is a very clear 
well, for us, for UK lawyers, is a clear investigate, then you charge, then you have a, then you plead guilty or not guilty, and then you go to trial or sentence. Most countries, in fact, almost all countries that aren't common law, have a completely different system, and they have a civil law or investigatory magistrate system where there's not the same clear lines between, or the not the same clear lines, but the same difference between. Uh, investigation and prosecution and trial. So in Sweden, you have a, an investigating prosecutor. And so what they wanted to do is they wanted to, to question him in relation to, to the case. And that was all part of the investigatory stage. But most countries can't, who aren't the UK won't, won't make a decision on whether they're going to prosecute somebody until the accused has an opportunity to respond to that allegation. And Julian Assange's contention was always well I can just tell them that by video but most cases that I've done where we've run that type of argument or where we've argued that type of argument you essentially have to put down to the fact that it's just a different system and it's not actually a worse system or a better system than ours it's just different and his issue was well he had two issues one he didn't want to go to Sweden to face those allegations he said because he was going to be extradited to the United States. Mm-hmm. But we'll never know the truth of that, because eventually the prosecution's timed out in Sweden. Sweden could never have been made not to prosecute, send him to the United States. That would have been a mad undertaking to give, because international law doesn't necessarily allow you to do that. What would have happened is if, if, it, if he had gone to Sweden and uh, the US had made an extradition request, that Swedes would have had to get permission from the United Kingdom in order to onwardly extradite him to the United States. Mm-hmm. But as it was, he went all this way to the Supreme Court and lost, and then um, obviously went into hiding in the Ecuadorian embassy. And in the interim, a lot of the victims gave up and the Swedish time limits kicked in. And I'm pretty sure most of, if not all of the offences were eventually barred by statute of limitation. Yes. Well, the allegation of molestation were dropped in 2015 because Sweden had run out of time to question Julian Assange. Then finally, a Swedish prosecutor came to interrogate him in the Equatorian embassy at the end of 2016, and the allegation of rape were dropped in the first term of 2017. But the investigation into sexual assault were reopened in May 2019 when Julian Assange was about to be expelled from the Equatorian embassy because, according to the prosecutor, there was still probable cause to suspect that he had committed the alleged rape only to be completely dropped in November 2019, so five months later, because the evidence had disappeared. Yes, and and also if you wait that long, the witnesses' recollections go and maybe the victims have decided to move on. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. But the thought behind this is that, as Julian Assange's team was arguing, if the US wanted him to be extradited from the UK to Sweden and then onwards to the US, then by issuing a Europeanized warrant, the process was quasi impossible to stop. The procedure is so straightforward. 
since there are no examination of the evidence, that is extremely difficult to stop that procedure. And actually, Julian Assange's team tried and failed. And uh, one of the main criticisms about the European arrest warrant is that the efficiency of the warrant sometimes results in an infringement of the person's extradited human right. I have to say, I don't agree with that. I mean, I've done hundreds, if not over, well over a thousand European arrest warrants. Mm. And it's based on mutual trust and cooperation. Yeah. And I've argued a lot of human rights issues particularly in relation to very poor prison conditions all over Europe and breaches of prison conditions. But except in, the, except in the most political of cases, it is very difficult to show that a, a member of the European Arrest Warrant Scheme cannot mm-hmm. give you a fair trial. In fact, I don't really know. I don't know very many cases where that's actually been shown. There are political cases and they, they occasionally get discharged or get, get asylum. and. I mean, one of the criticisms of the European Arrest Warrant Scheme, we're going to come to the US scheme in a minute, is that the European Arrest Warrant Scheme didn't provide proper evidence. But to me, that's always been a misnomer. It's always been a a non-issue because the provision of evidence in extradition proceedings is always pretty light touch in any event. Mm-hmm. Even in those cases, like, for instance, I've done it recently in an Indian case where they have to prove a prima facie case the standard that they have to provide that evidence to is extremely low. And in a lot of the cases I do in relation to former uh, CIS states uh, and in relation to political cases, Hmm. they don't even have to provide proper evidence in those cases. And in those cases, the evidence is often fabricated. And if you're going to fabricate one piece of evidence, the fact that you're probably prepared to fabricate 20 or 50. And so... In fact, you can make a case look much stronger against somebody by, in fabrication cases and political cases, by fabricating evidence. But really, what we're saying in the European Arrest Warrant Scheme and and what we also say in the US Scheme is is we don't really mind about the evidence because we trust that Sweden, Poland, Germany, France, etc. have a sufficiently developed legal system that they can look at the evidence in a case and make a decision that's fair and in compliance with the law of natural justice and therefore give this person a fair trial. Hmm. And it might be that they're acquitted. There might not be enough evidence to convict them. That's not a question we can decide now. Because extradition is the process of the transfer of the individual between jurisdictions. It's not about guilt or innocence. Mm-hmm. And so it's often very difficult to challenge the evidence in a um, requesting state. In fact, almost impossible in most cases, uh, until the individual has returned to that requesting state. Or unless they have a lot of money who, and they can engage lawyers who can get hold of the files and argue the prosecutors in the state whilst they are still in the state where they've been requested from. Yes, but again, without the evidence being fully established and him being charged officially, his freedom of movement was drastically reduced. When the warrant was issued, he spent 10 days in prison in quasi-solitary confinement and then was released on bail but with the most restrictive bail conditions? Uh, Yes and no. So it's not a breach of Article 5 of the European Convention on Human Rights because Article 5 has an exception for law enforcement. Mm. And so you can put, provided that there is a judicial decision to put you in prison, it's absolutely fine. And so... You don't have to be charged. I suppose my, my point is is that charge is a UK 
concept and that most of my clients never get so-called charged. So, in you know, you have an examining magistrate and they take it to the investigatory stage and then if somebody pleads not guilty, then they take it to the trial, then they hand the case over to the trial judge. So in the Swedish case, he was required to come back to be part of the investigatory stage and then if they decided not to believe him or they thought they had enough evidence to take him to trial, then they would have done so. And most countries that I deal with who aren't in the European Union have a similar system where the investigatory stage requires or can require the individual to come and provide their version of the events. Mm-hmm. And that's why we, we used to have, we still have what well, we still have, but, but the Section 12, capital A of the Extradition Act 2003, which says that if the, the requesting state isn't ready to trial charge somebody, that the UK won't send them back there but only on the condition that the only reason that they haven't been tried or charged is because they agree, is because of some action that needs to take place, some procedural action that needs to take place and they need to be in the country to do that. Uh, and that's often the obstacle to a lot of these cases is because a procedural code, uh, I mean, I've had this in Poland before and Germany, there's a block on the case. They won't carry the case on until they've got you there. Mm. That's probably what would have happened in Sweden. So he would have gone to Sweden, been interviewed, and unless they decided to drop it then and there, he would have then gone straight to trial. Mm-hmm. Yes, I understand what you're saying. Thank you. And very interesting point. And also thank you for your patience with my very inquisitive questions. Now, let's move on to the following question, and this is about the extradition process to the US. So could you tell us a little bit more about the extradition law in the UK and the extradition treaty between the US and the UK? And what are the checks and balances in those procedures? So, the, I mean, the United States and many other countries are, are part of part two of the Extradition Act 2003. So that's the, the UK part of the extradition law. The underlying treaty for most countries is the 1957 European Convention on Extradition. But with the USA, we have a separate treaty, which I think was signed in 2003 and came to be ratified in 2004. Mm-hmm. There is a lot of literature about the imbalance on the treaty, which essentially goes along these lines, that there's a difference between the UK test, which is reasonable prospect of conviction, essentially a prosecutor's test, and a probable cause test, which is what the grand jury have to deliver. But there are still checks and balances in the US system because they they, work, they still won't issue an extradition request unless a grand jury has put forward an indictment. And fundamentally, we trust the US to to give somebody a fair trial, whether or not that's, that's correct or not. The real distinction, the real problem with the US system, apart from its horrific prisons, is the zealousness of the prosecutors and the resources. Mm-hmm. So the US prosecutors have no compunction with having extraterritorial reach. So a lot of people who are in banking and finance if their transactions have gone through the United States at any point, then the DOJ and the SEC may well come knocking at their door, even though they never set foot in the United States. And so that's really the imbalance between, if anything, between the UK and the US. It's not such a legal one, but more of of, of a, a willingness and political will to prosecute people who are overseas. Uh, it, the difference between the European arrest warrant system 
and a US request is the US request has to provide slightly more information, but not actually a huge amount more. And a US request will usually will have a summary of uh, the facts usually provided by a district attorney or a, a member of the attorney general's office, a summary of the law, uh, details of the person who's being who wants to be extradited, and sometimes a copy of the grand jury indictment and any other associated papers, but it won't be a set of evidence. So the US is not required to prove an evidential basis of the case because we say with a grand jury of issued indictment and the US are happy to issue an extradition warrant, then that's enough for us. Mm-hmm. So in the case of Julian Assange, the judge has decided that all the conditions were gathered for his extradition to take place, but still rejected the request on Julian Assange mental health issues basis. So she dismissed his legal team's argument around the political motivated extradition, fair trial, and freedom of the press. Instead, she decided that his extradition to a supermax prison would be so oppressive that there would be a real risk for him to commit suicide. Could you give us more information about this decision? So there's quite a lot of different arguments. I'm not going to go through every single one of them. But the important ones were, so Julian Assange said that his the extradition request was political, politically motivated, that uh, his human rights wouldn't be respected because of that political issue, mm-hmm. and then ran a sort of separate or, or conjoined attack basically saying that the, any actions that he might have taken or accused of taking was in fact because he was engaged in journalistic activities and not criminal activities. I mean, one of the issues that the judge looked at was the issue of political offence as opposed to political motivation. So political motivation for an extradition request is contained within Section 81 of Part 2 of the Extradition Act in Part 2 cases. And that really says that your extradition is requested because of a political opinion rather than for a genuine purpose. And she found that that wasn't the case. That's slightly different to the other more slightly more technical argument, which which is the political offence exception. And there's a subtle difference between political offence, where the character of the offence you are accused of is political, and therefore should not be extradited for, and political motivation, which is essentially focused on the mind of the state or or prosecutors who are requesting the extradition. Mm -hmm. And the judge looked at both of those and essentially decided that it's not a politically motivated extradition request and the political offence exception didn't apply to the offences that he was requested to face extradition to the US for. What she did then go and look at was a combination of prison conditions and his mental health. And the issues on that were looking at not just the fact that he was extremely unwell, but the conditions that he would go back to in the United States. So United States prisons are pretty awful. Mm-hmm. Anything that's not the lowest security level are pretty awful. Many of them are run by gangs. There's a phenomenal amount of violence. And the conditions that particularly politically sensitive prisoners or lifers are held in are nothing short of horrific. Mm-hmm. Some of the so the supermax prisons essentially involve being locked in a cage 23 hours a day, and then being allowed to walk into another cage for an hour to get some exercise. And that's all you do for the rest of your life. You're never allowed out. Now, that wasn't necessarily the case in Julian Assange. She couldn't find that. But his issue was that because of the political nature of the 
prosecution, even if it wasn't politically motivated. So the the allegations of espionage, etc., meant that he was potentially a target within the prison system. And so as a result of that, the US prison system would have to take quite serious measures to protect him. And that essentially meant he would be in solitary confinement in some pretty horrific conditions for, at the very least, the course of any trial process that took place. Uh, And we know that Chelsea Manning, who he is said to have assisted, uh, obviously suffered huge mental health problems. And he'd also, um, I suspect, through a combination of consistent isolation and uh, detention, uh, along with whatever other issues there were, developed quite serious mental health problems whilst in the Ecuadorian embassy and then obviously later in Belmarsh. And those had deteriorated significantly. And he was receiving, although Belmarsh Prison is, is not the nicest place in the world, nope. <laughs> they do actually provide pretty strong care because a lot of their prisons are extremely dangerous and they have an extremely skilled psychiatric team there. And he was receiving quite significant support from the psychiatric team in Belmarsh, even though I think he was being kept alone for quite a lot of it. But they're not locked in their cells 23 hours a day and it's not the same isolating and no human contact for the rest of your life kind of scenario which you have in the United States. And she basically said, looking at that, looking at the combination of his very serious mental illness and likely suicide, combined with the lack of protective factors in the United States, meant that he was almost certain to commit suicide and therefore shouldn't be extradited. Mm-hmm. So the protective factors are something that we often look at in suicide cases. And the suicide cases are very rare that you are really, really succeed, but also pretty rare that you have somebody who is so unwell that they should be extradited because of their mental health issue. But in Julian Assange's case, there were no protective factors. So protective factors are things like good medical care, being able to speak to other people, being able to see your family. Well, since you are talking about family, I was wondering why there was no mention of the right of family life. Julian Assange now has two very small children and a partner who live in the UK, and he's uh, facing 175 years in prison, so he would have had very few opportunities to see them. But the reason for that is is that Article 8 of the European Convention on Human Rights is a proportionality exercise. Hmm. So to not be extradited under Article 8, you would be, have to be accused or convicted of a very minor offence. And then you balance that very minor offence against very serious impact on your personal life. So disabled children or partner or serious health issues as a result of your leaving destitution for your family. Hmm. But if you think about it in this context, if somebody was convicted, for instance, of espionage in the United Kingdom, there would be no prospect of us not sending them to prison just because their family weren't here. Now, it's slightly different if somebody's going to go abroad. But because of the seriousness of the offences, I don't think his legal team really argued Article 8 of that. It wouldn't have even started as a proper argument to be able to to argue that somebody who's accused of such serious offences shouldn't be extradited because of uh, their private and family life. Yes, of course. But taking into account that he's suicidal, not being able to see his family would actually have put him even more at risk. Certainly be dangerous for his mental health, yes. But... On a balancing exercise on his private family life, he wouldn't have, he was never going to get anywhere with that. And then, I mean, the other thing that she looked at was the 
the journalistic activity issue. So, so effectively saying, well, because what he was accused of essentially was providing information, secret information, which he shouldn't have provided to the press. Yeah. And that was really the work of an investigative journalist rather than, and so it was a, if you extradited him, it would have been breach of Article 10 of the Convention, an offence against free speech, essentially, rather than um, a criminal offence. She, she didn't find that that was uh, correct. And that's, again, there are no bright line rules about what is and isn't free speech and, or journalistic in those circumstances. It's a balancing exercise because free speech is a proportionate right. And so it's not absolute. So, for instance, in the UK, you have a, a right to free speech and the rest of Europe, unless you, unless you don't. And there are scenarios where you don't. And those scenarios are where you, for instance, where you might be racist, abusive, threatening, or in his case, where you might put people, they, the United States says you might put people in danger or mm-hmm. breach the official secrets in the UK, providing classified government information that would be a criminal offence. So it's not to say that, that some of his activity wasn't journalistic, but there was also some of it that would certainly have put him in that criminal category. It's not a clear decision. It would be one I would have thought you'd have to tend to a judge in the US to decide whether or not that what he did was in fact just free speech or whether it was in fact some sort of criminal activity. But she decided on the extradition request, mm-hmm. there's enough evidence to show that it was a criminal activity and should be returned to face that charge. It doesn't mean there was necessarily enough evidence to prove it because that wasn't the decision she had to take. Just that on what the US said he was done, which is all she could look at, that was enough to at least get him to a trial face charge. Yes, very interesting point. Yet in this case, one of the information revealed was a video showing the killing of civilians and two journalists by US soldiers from an helicopter located above them. So is there an argument to say that condemning the person who reveals the crime is a way to muddle the messenger of government wrongdoing and allow that government to deter any form of scrutiny over his activities, even potentially criminal ones? Yes and no. I I think you have to worry less about the United States. I think there are a lot of jurisdictions where free speech is non-existent and they will do a lot worse to you than try and extradite you if you say something against their governments. So I think there is a real issue there on free speech, but I'm not sure actually the United States are by any means the worst offenders. In fact, their free speech rules are pretty good. The the issue is, is that they say that Julian Assange broke into a confidential facility in order to steal the information. Mm -hmm. So... (laughs) There's a difference between finding it out mm. and stealing it. And that's where the line is. And most investigative journalists wouldn't go about stealing things because that would be a criminal offence. It's not a defence to a criminal act to say, but I was doing it in the course of journalism. If you help somebody, if you go to break into GCHQ, for instance, mm-hmm. and you stand there holding the bolt cutters while somebody goes to the fence in order to steal the file, you are as guilty in criminal terms, holding the bolt cutters as the person who's gone all the way in and taken the the paper. Mm. Journalism defence does not prevent you from being a criminal. So journalists all around the world have to be extremely careful. I mean, as I say, you know, for instance, some of the the issues in Bangladesh with journalism is is horrific. You know, journalists disappear. uh, And when I say disappear, they are are disappeared and they are killed if they write anti-government 
material. They're not the, and I think there was there've been sort of thirty or forty journalists in the last few years who who that's happened to. So that is the sort of place that you need to, you need to worry about in terms of journalism. What about the right to scrutinize our governments by exposing their wrongdoing? Well, but the problem is, is you can't condone further criminal activity just to expose somebody else's criminal activity. The point of effective democratic or non-democratic government mm-hmm. is that government is scrutinized by the legislature. So, you know, parliament can scrutinize government. Now, of obviously journalists can expose corruption issues and war crimes and things like that, but mm. that's why there are criminal offences for, for stealing and breaking and entering and, and committing criminal fact. And there there is no in the UK there's no public interest offence, although some people argue there should be. Well, I believe this case will reopen this debate. So to come back to the decision in general, what did you think of it? Um, I think the decision is very interesting because it it deals quite clearly with the factual scenario of his mental health and the dramatic lack of care that's available in the United States. And I think it's quite an interesting judgment because it's mostly on the facts of the evidence that the judge heard before her. So she doesn't make lots of broad sweeping statements about the US facilities or all the care that's available. She actually has some extremely good evidence from both sides about the conditions that he would go back to and his mental health. And those two combinations meant that she believed that the extremely high test for mental health was going to be met. Okay. So we now know that the US has appealed that decision. So what do you think is going to happen next? Uh, they've appealed the decision, I presume. I don't know the, the ins and outs of the appeal. I presume they've just appealed the issue of mental health in the US. But I would suspect that Julian Assange has appealed all the other things that the judge found against him. Mm-hmm. So it will be a question of whether they argue everything again or whether they just look at the mental health issue. The US are going to face an uphill struggle, I suspect, because it's about the facts of his mental health and the facts of the prison conditions. The judge didn't really disbelieve anybody. She just took the evidence that she had before her and decided that sending him to the United States would essentially mean that he would commit suicide. And in those circumstances, decided that it would be oppressive to extradite him under Section 91 of the Extradition Act. I would expect that that both sides will try and put in new evidence, and whether the High Court is interested in that or not, I'm not sure. But they have to get permission first, and that will take quite some considerable time. Yes, we'll wait and see what happens. So in the meantime, let's go to question about your career. Can you tell us, when did you decide to become a lawyer, and specifically a barrister, and what has influenced your choice? It's a bit like a pupage question. Um, <laughs> it, it's so long ago now. It was always a career that interested me. Mm-hmm. And I read history at university in Manchester. And sort of towards the end of my time in Manchester, I looked at my options as to what sort of careers I wanted to do. And I went and did lots of work experience at different places. And watching some of the barristers was in Manchester was just very interesting, very insightful. And I liked the job. I liked the idea of being self-employed and being your own boss. And I like the idea of advocacy. I was always a much better talker than I was a writer. Mm-hmm. And so that's sort of how I decided that I want to become a barrister. What I do isn't necessarily the same as what another barrister does. He does a different area of law from me. And what, what I do now 
compared to what I did when I started is almost completely different. And what I do now is that I am a a mixed uh, have a very mixed practice involving public and international law and some criminal trial work, mm-hmm. which means that a large amount of my time is spent advising in writing and in conference. Whereas I suppose when I started my career, most of what I was doing was was Crown Court trials and Magistrates Court trials. So you're in court every day arguing and representing in cases. And now I spend a lot more time preparing and advising and, and a lot less time in actual trials. Mm-hmm. What has been the proudest moment of your career so far? That's difficult because the hardest thing in my career is representing somebody who you think is innocent. Mm-hmm. Representing extremely serious criminals for whom they've been caught and being caught as part of the job is a lot less stressful than representing people who are caught in the middle of caught in the middle of a war or have been in the wrong place at the wrong time. Mm-hmm. I think one of the proudest moments was was, was a a political case which I won, which involved a Ukrainian politician who had been targeted by the then president. And over a number of years, we'd fought the case and we'd lost it in one tribunal. And then we finally won. And he didn't have to be extradited to Ukraine, where he would have lost everything in his family. And he was able to continue living in the United Kingdom and, and working and um, mm-hmm. and carry on his life. And uh, you know, I still see him every now and again, even to this day. Mm-hmm. Right. And what has been the most significant hurdle in your career and how have you overcome it? I think the most significant hurdle is trying to juggle all the different things that you try and do, trying to get the balance between quality work, quality advocacy, networking, marketing, managing chambers, and just maintaining the balance between all the different different aspects of being self-employed. Mm-hmm. So it's not one single challenge, it's more of a system. And I think you overcome it bit by bit, not one single obstacle, but you know, every day or every week you, you sort of slightly readjust one lever so that you're doing slightly less of one thing and slightly more of another thing. Mm-hmm. It's being constantly aware of what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Okay. And from which situation have you learned the most during your career? There's no one situation. You get flashes so mm-hmm. particularly in the early days, you, so you're learning. You, you you ask questions in cases, and you, you so you learn when you're learning to cross-examine properly or, or make submissions properly. You'll say something. You'll say something too much. You'll say you'll say the wrong thing, and you and you get the wrong answer, and you'll make a mental note never ask that question again for the rest of your career. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't tell you what those were, but you have a distinct sense of certain aspects where you do something you like. That did not work at all. I'm never doing that again. But it's an iterative process. You know, you you get a little bit better each time. It's about how much time you can devote to each case and the balance between having quality written work and quality advocacy. Both are important. And you have to be good at both. But I think I would tend to say in most areas of law that I deal with, I think outstanding advocacy is Oral advocacy is probably preferred over outstanding written advocacy, but that's just me. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. I know you've already given us lots of advice, but is there any other piece of information you'd like to leave a sparring lawyer or barrister with? 
two things really. First, never write anything down that you don't want to appear in court. It's something that I've been was taught by a very senior lawyer when I first started, and it stood me in good stead because everything you write may at some point, in the wrong case, in the case you're not expecting, have to go before a high court judge. Uh, and if you've said something inappropriate in it, then it will just look extremely embarrassing. And I think the second thing is, if you want to be a barrister, you need to understand that it's not about being a barrister, it's about running a business. To be really successful, I think you need to be good at a combination of not just law and procedure and advocacy and written work, but you also have to be good at running your own business. And that means being on top of your admin, Mm -hmm. being on top of your marketing, and you need to like the lifestyle, Mm -hmm. which is a bit itinerant and a bit uncertain, but it can also be very exciting as well. Mm -hmm. Well, on this positive note, I want to thank you for your time and the candor that you have demonstrated while answering my questions, which at times were quite inquisitive. This podcast is slightly longer than usual, but this has allowed for a captivating analysis. Thank you very much again for being with us today. No problem. It's been a pleasure. The information contained on this episode is not to be interpreted as legal advice, but is provided for informative purpose only. Formal legal advice should be sought for any specific case. Our guests are presenting their personal opinions in the context of an informal conversation and do not speak on behalf of their employers, partners, contractors or clients. Thank you so much for listening to this edition of A Question of Law. Your engagement with the show is at the heart of its success. The show has already received a fantastic amount of support and I'm really thankful for this. But the challenge is to keep you, the audience, engaged and fascinated. So if you have appreciated the show, please let me know by tuning in for the next one, rating and sharing the episodes and leaving comments. So until the next question of law, keep well.